This episode of The Way Home Podcast is brought to you by the 2017 ERLC National Conference, August 24th through 26th in Nashville, Tennessee. This year's theme is Christ-Centered Parenting in a Complex World. You go to ERLC.com slash events for more information. Well, I'm glad to have with me Ernie Johnson. Ernie Johnson is one of the sports most respected and beloved personalities. He's a three-time sports Emmy Award winner and host of the very popular TNT Inside the NBA studio show with Charles Barkley, Kenny Smith, and Shaquille O'Neal. Very popular. Ernie's also broadcast Major League Baseball, PGA Championship, cover the National Football League, and people just love Ernie for his warm style and uh, pretty outspoken about his faith. Ernie, thanks for joining me today. It's my pleasure, Dan. Thanks for having me on. So glad to have you here, and I want to talk about a number of topics. But first of all, I, we're right in the thick of the NBA playoffs, so I, I have to get right into that. Um, <laughs> so I'm a huge Chicago Bulls fan. I don't think they're going to do much in the playoffs, but are you surprised by how well they've played the Celtics? Yeah, well, I, I figured going in that they might have uh, they might give Boston some, some problems, uh, even though it's one of those one-versus-eight matchups. Chicago rebounds the ball so well. Boston does not. I thought that would be a big factor. And you got a guy like Jimmy Butler, who's, you know, a, a premier player in the league. Yeah. And 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 the thing that that really stood out is is that the Chicago team seemed to be just ready to burst at the seams yeah. about mid season. And and Rajon Rondo was right in the middle of that, and uh, he was in the doghouse for a long time, and and then he turned it on, and this and they were playing great team basketball, then Rondo broke his broke his thumb. And so it really opened the door for Boston to tie things up and reclaim the home court. So this time of year for you, the thick of the playoffs, is this is this an exhilarating time for you? Is it, you know, you're probably in and out of different cities. What's this like for you? Well it's you know, we're in the studio doing our show. We don't we don't hit the road until the conference finals. And so really it's just a grind uh basically on the air every night and, and our studio show wraps up at about two fifteen in the morning. And then I'm usually in by noon the next day. And so it's just, uh, it's just an endurance test. You know, luckily there's no heavy lifting and we're sitting around watching, watching basketball, but there is a lot of homework to do in between, in between those shows. So yeah, it's, the workload is is pretty heavy and the, and the hours are long, but hey, if, if your boss told you, hey, your job right now is to watch the NBA playoffs, you'd probably take that. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, you know, I think it's no secret that your show with, with Kenny and Charles and Shaq is, is just really fun and just a, a beloved show. And, you know, people tune in for the games, but I really actually think people tune in to, to hear you guys talk about the NBA and talk about life. When you first started the show with those guys, did you have any idea how it would take off? I had no idea. I'll be totally honest with you on that. And there's no way in our business you can ever predict chemistry. You can't predict that if we put these three people or these four people together, uh, that it's going to click. But for some reason, it did for us. With you know, Kenny and I were on the show. Uh, you know, back in the old days, I did the show by myself, and then we uh, we integrated different analysts in there, whether that was Dick Versace or Reggie Theus or Cheryl Miller, and. And when Kenny Smith retired, he became part of the show and was is such a natural on the air that he was a perfect fit. And then when we added Charles around 2000, 2001, he changed the landscape of sports TV. And that's that's not an overstatement because Charles 
was the same guy on the air that he was as a player, mm-hmm. always quotable, always sharing his opinions, and he and he kept that up. I think my only concern right when, when we began was when the novelty of this wears off, is Charles going to want to do something else? And here we are, <laughs> you know, 17 years later, and, and we're all still together, and we've had Shaq for the last you know, five or six years. So no, it's, it's a great group. I grew up with two older sisters. This is as close as I'll ever come to having brothers. And, and, uh, and we have a great time together. Yeah. You guys seem like you just have so much, so much fun. Are you having as much fun as we are watching it? Twice as much, at least. <laughs> That's uh, awesome. it, it really is a fun night because, you know, what you don't see is what goes on, you know, when the cameras are off and we all just genuinely respect each other, love each other and, and enjoy working together. And so, yeah, what you see on the air, it's you know, it's an unscripted and and uh, spontaneous and freewheeling show. We don't rehearse it. You know, we just uh, we go out there and and uh, let her rip and uh and it's been uh it's been a pretty good formula for a long time now. So, you know, you grew up the son of a pretty well-respected uh, sportscaster, longtime Atlanta baseball broadcaster. And so when you were growing up, did you aspire to this just because of what your dad was doing? Did this kind of happen late in life? Share your journey a little bit and maybe talk a little bit about what you learned from your dad. Well, I aspired to be a baseball player like my dad. He uh, he was a pitcher for the Milwaukee Braves and the, and the uh, Baltimore Orioles back in the 50s and won a World Series ring in 57 with the Milwaukee Braves. And that's really when I grew up, I wanted to be a baseball player. Mm. And so I, I was able to take that up until the University of Georgia, and I walked on as a freshman and, and then was told to walk off as a sophomore. So that was the, that was the end of the, uh, the baseball dream after <laughs> playing one season for the Bulldogs at Georgia. And really, I had told myself, if the baseball thing doesn't work out, I'm going to be an English teacher and baseball coach in high school. Mm-hmm. That, that was, that's what I thought I wanted to do. And having tagged along with my dad all those years as he was broadcasting Atlanta Braves baseball, you know, I got a real taste for what, for what that was like and just decided, really, after I got cut from the baseball team, I, may, you know, I might try the campus radio station here and see if this is something I'd want to do. And and I was bitten immediately by mm-hmm. that bug, and so that's where it took off. You know, then it's you know you're working you're working local radio in Athens, Georgia. Then you trying to get a TV job, and that happened in Macon, Georgia, and mm-hmm. then to Spartanburg, South Carolina, to Atlanta, and then and then to Turner Broadcasting, where I've been since 1989. Mm-hmm. So that was that was kind of that journey. You do talk in the book about things you learned from your dad and yeah. the close relationship you had with your father. You know, I had a great relationship with my dad as well, but that's not something that every son gets to enjoy. And no, so you're right. you've seemed like you've reflected on that. What, what are some things that you really learned from your dad? Well, I mean, his, his best bit of advice was always be yourself. Mm-hmm. Uh, don't feel like when you're on the air, you have to be some other personality. This is, you just, who you are is, is, is what you do on the air. And the important thing is that uh, I learned just from watching my dad. It's not like one day he sat me down on a sofa and said, here are five things to remember. You know, uh, you know, we would have, we would have good talks obviously in the course of my growing up, but uh, I just, he modeled everything for Mm. me. I just watched him. I watched how he respected people. I watched how he um, approached his job, uh, his, his work ethic and how, and how he never thought that he was special because of the job he had. He just thought the job was special because it allowed him to do baseball, the game he loved for for a lifetime. Mm-hmm. And um, but really, I just I saw how he dealt with people. I saw how he always took the high road. 
how he just said, hey, once you've done your best to heck with it, you know, you can't do anything else about that once you've put in the work. Mm-hmm. And so all of those things I just I just was able to observe. And I think and I think the message there for moms and dads these days is look, your kids have superpowers. They see and hear everything. Mm. You know, they they're taking mental notes all the time at how you handle different situations. And and, and that's exactly the way it was with me. And of course, you know, you've talked about how those lessons have carried over into your role as a father. And I think one of the things that's the people enjoy about you is how open you are about fatherhood and about your journey. Uh, you've adopted four out of your six children. You want to share a little bit about how adoption kind of became part of your story, part of your journey? Yeah, I, I mean, that I, you know, I trace that to marrying way over my head, uh, <laughs> Cheryl DeLuca Johnson, who has uh, uh, been my wife for nearly 35 years now. And she has always had that as part of her soul, is that she's always looked outside of herself to see how she can make a difference. And so, you know, I was, you know, it, I was kind of living the script that I had, to, that I had laid out, like, have a great wife. I got a good job. We've got a boy and a girl. I mean, that's the script, you know, and why deviate from that? And it was really her idea originally on adoption that turned our lives around. You know, she had seen a, a the ABC 2020 story about these orphans in Romania who were basically being warehoused and forgotten, especially those with uh, any kind of, uh, you know, physical defects or, or, or emotional problems and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And and it was her idea. She said, we, I think we need to adopt one of these kids from Romania. And, and that really uh, started to grow my heart for adoption. And so, you know, we adopted Michael from, from Romania in 1991. We adopted a little girl from Paraguay in 1993. Mm-hmm. And later, when we were both in our 50s, we adopted two girls out of foster care in, in uh, Cleveland, Ohio. And, and, They've been with us for six years now. So adoption is 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 something that really revs our engine. It really mm-hmm. does. I mean, that's we have a heart for that and, and trying to give kids another chance. You know, ESPN did a special, which I think, you know, I, I watched that and it was, you know, I have to I have to be honest, I was uh reaching for the Kleenex when I was watching yeah. your story on there. And uh, that's, 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 you know, I've heard that reaction from a lot of folks. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and it is kind of unique for a rival network to really feature a broadcaster from, from the rival network, but really focused on uh, your son, Michael, and, you know, his profound disabilities and how you care for him. What, what is that experience of fatherhood taught you? Well, I think, uh, number one, there's value in everybody. Um, uh, when we originally adopted Michael and I was at home with our two kids and Cheryl was in Romania mm. and, and Michael was the first child that they brought out for Cheryl to consider. And the woman who handed him to her and he was nearly three years old, couldn't walk or talk, just made some noises. And, and the woman actually told my wife, don't take this boy. He's no good. And, uh, to see the impact he's had, um, in the time we've had him, and he's 28 years old now, uh, has been profound and just has screamed at me that there is value in everybody. Mm. And, and so that's one of the great lessons. And, and on a daily basis, it puts me in an attitude of servanthood because we're, we're caring for a man now who can't do anything on his own. 
So we have to do everything for him. Mm. And so you get him up in the morning and you wash him and you take him to the bathroom and you dress him and you do everything for him. And anytime he has an itch, you have to scratch it. He doesn't have the strength to do that. Mm. And so, and so I think, you know, it puts me in a very good place uh, in just having to serve and trying to keep that mentality throughout the day. Mm. How have you, you know, you are a very devoted father with six children, but you're also very faithful and devoted in, in your career. I mean, is there a word that you have for for guys like us? I don't want to use the word balance because that seems r- really difficult, but just finding good rhythms. Yeah, and, and really, I mean, who out there can't relate to that? You know, this there's always that that line that you that you're trying to uh to travel that is responsibilities at work responsibilities at home and you know everybody has different schedules a lot of guys have to travel a lot and and miss a lot of things and you know I went through that with my father you know mm-hmm. his, he, as a big league broadcaster the baseball season is long and you know and he was on the road a lot but he made the most of the time he had with us. And I think that's the important thing. You know, time is just, is just huge. And so I, I think it behooves us all to, to make the most of that when we have it. I mean, again, that has to be, it can't be about you. It's got to be about the kids you're raising. Mm. And, and so that's what I've, you know, I've, I've always tried to carry that on from my father to teach that to my kids. And my oldest is 32 and he's got a little boy and mm. my oldest daughter is 30 and she's got a little girl. And, and, and that's always what I've, I, look, I'm just trying to be the best, you know, possible example of Ernie Johnson senior that I can be for my kids and try to keep passing that down and the value of time and, and, and making that time for your kids. Mm. You've talked pretty openly about your faith in Christ, which, you know, is, you know, sometimes people might feel that's a little risky to talk about that. Sure. Or, but if you could just speak about how your faith in Christ has really helped you soldier through some very difficult trials, including being diagnosed with cancer, and um, maybe maybe speak about that a little bit. Well, I, I, here's here's the thing. I um, when I'm when you're in this this business, you know, and it's you know, there's there's always this. Hey, look, you know, you never talk about never talk about politics, never talk about faith. You know, in, in, in our, in our show, you know, we have talked about social issues mm. a lot, you yeah. know, and that's one of the, that's one of the things that, that Charles brought to the show is that we didn't always talk about basketball and he had something on his mind. He'd go there and, and we'd go there too. And, and so, um, you know, it's not like I come into work, you know, and walk into the production meeting and tell everybody, open up your Bibles to Romans eight, let's dive in. <laughs> you know, you don't hit people over the head with it. But you're constantly, you have your antenna up. And, and that can be just spending five minutes with somebody at work who's going through a hard time. Mm. You know, that's, and, and, you know, there were times, and, and I think the most, the most obvious, you know, point was after the election this year when we were all mm-hmm. going to talk about how we processed Donald Trump's win over Hillary Clinton. And, and I knew that in the two minutes that I would have, I had to be totally transparent and totally honest about how I processed mm. it. And I process that election like I process everything in my life, and it's, and it's through the lens of my faith. Because the faith is not a slice of the pie of my life, it's the crust. Mm. It's the foundation. Mm. So anything I'm going through, anything I'm trying to process, goes through that lens. And so, uh, you know, to, to be able to go on the air and be totally honest and say that, look, I never know who's going to be 
in the Oval Office from one election to the next, but I always know who's on the throne. Amen. And so that's the way that's the way I have always processed it. And 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 so that was me being totally honest. And and I think again, you have to be intentional in your daily walk about being open with your faith, but I think you also have to pick your spots and you you have to be respectful of of, of folks. You, you know that the clip of you talking about that, which was so good. You know, people, you know, elections sort of everyone's kind of at frayed nerves, and they're just you know some people are jubilant and some people are freaked out, and it really was a a good calming word to people. However, you voted, and were you surprised at how uh, you know how that sort of went viral on online? <laughs> Yeah, I was stunned, as a matter of fact, because, you know, you know, I, would, I didn't do this to say, well, let's see if I can get the Internet buzzing with something <laughs> here. But but also I'm aware that if, that if you're going to talk about Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton and Jesus Christ all in the in the in the span of two minutes, <laughs> that people are going to talk about yeah. that and they're going to have various reactions. I was encouraged by the overwhelmingly positive response to that. Mm. And obviously, there are folks out there who said, "Hey, look, stick to sports. I don't want to hear mm. about your politics. I don't want to don't want to hear about your faith." But for me to to be totally honest, that's that's the direction I had to go in addressing that. And I remember that a couple of days later, on that Saturday morning, my wife and I are at the breakfast table, and she's got her computer open to Facebook, and she's and she said, "You know what you said the other night has has 15 million views on Facebook, and uh, I still hear from people." all the time, who will just come up to me in an airport or at the mall or at dinner somewhere and say, hey, I saw what you said after the election. I appreciate that. And and I, I think in a, in a way it, it, it maybe gave voice to some folks who don't have the platform that I had mm-hmm. who, who had felt the same way, that, mm-hmm. they, that they were dissatisfied with the choices they had in the election and that they, uh, and, and then to hear me say that, uh, uh, look, I've I'm a Christian. I follow this guy named Jesus. You may have heard of him. And, and you know, I'm praying for the le- praying for my leaders as I'm instructed to do in Scripture. And so, you know, that was, uh, it, was, uh, it, was a, it was a crazy few days, that's for sure. You know, I think it's refreshing, too, for people to, to hear that you actually didn't know how well it did. You're not, you know, checking, hey, did this go well? Did I go viral? You know, which is sort of a temptation, I think, in our social media age. Well, um, I couldn't, well, I'll tell you one thing. I couldn't, I couldn't uh, ignore it on I me. Mean, my computer blew up. Yeah. I mean, I, I had so many tweets all night long yeah. that, uh, that it was, so I knew it had had an impact. Mm-hmm. And, and so, you know, when I'm, you know, looking at this and, I, and it says you have 200 new tweets and I start <laughs> reading a few of those and I go back to the top of the page, it says you have 700 new tweets. I mean, it never, it, it never stopped. Yeah. And so, no, I was, I was aware of it, but, uh, until that Saturday, I didn't know the scope when she when she told me they had 15 million views on Facebook. You know, I want to talk about that because you know, as a public figure, it seems like public figures like yourself are probably more accessible than they've ever been through social media. And you know, it you draw a lot of fans, but you also draw a lot of critics and even some just nasty stuff. Like, how do you stay, uh, I guess, grounded w- with all that when when you're receiving all that feedback? And also, how do you uh, how do you disconnect, you know, from the digital world and, and sort of being with your family? Is, is there something that kind of a process you go through, or what's been the a good formula for you? Well, one of the things that uh, again that my dad taught me, and and you know, he'd been through this long before the social media age, just mm-hmm. with fan mail and that kind of thing, is you're never going to please everybody. Mm-hmm. And and look, the business we the business we're in is so subjective. 
you know, one person may think you're the greatest thing to ever hit TV, and other people said, oh, when he comes on, I turn it off. So, you, you know, you realize that that's going on out there. So um, that's not that's not a big issue. I've you know, I you don't get carried away with the uh, with the positive response, and you don't get torn down by the negative response. It's just it goes with the territory. But I I do think that we we need to unplug from time to time. And I you know, one of my pet peeves is you know seeing people with their with their heads buried mm. in their mobile devices while they walk and never looking up to see who's around. Mm. You know, and you miss out on conversations you could have or just, you know, seeing somebody who just needs somebody to to know that know that they matter. And so, you know, we try to do that whenever possible is just say, hey, look, let's let's get away. Don't we're not checking our phones now. We're not doing any of this. We you know, anything we miss here we can pick up on later. And and I think that's I think that's really important and and it's and it's become more and more difficult as social media has become so big and the ability to see things in an instant you know has has this lure on people but you no know, I I do my best to to unplug from that whenever I can. Your experience with cancer has really allowed you to use your platform to talk about how you've gone through that and encourage other people who, who have that. How, how did that experience really shape how you live today? Well, I think that you know, we had a very you know, deep conversation with my pastor, Kevin Myers, at, at 12 Stone Church outside mm. Atlanta. Um, and he has been such a mentor for me and, and been such a, you know, a guiding light for me uh, through various phases of my life. And, and you know, when you're diagnosed with cancer, there is a tendency and and you know you and I you know I went through it. I kind of shook my fist at God and was like, you know, what's going on here? You know, why is this happening? And and then Kevin and I, you know, we talked about it. I said, look, you've trusted your life with Jesus. Uh, you did that in 1997, and here it was 2003, and you're going through this diagnosis. He said, no. So what does that trust look like? Does it look like I'll trust if the next test comes back the way I want it to? I'll trust when this happens, or is it trust God, period? And that has been my mantra. That's the way I live my life, is that I, that I am trusting, because we're seeing such a small bit of this mm-hmm. bigger picture in our lives. And so I'm believing that there's, that there's a reason that, that this is going to grow me up in a certain way, and that, and that um, this is all part of a, a much bigger picture that I'm not privy to right now. So I'm going to trust him. Mm. And, and so, you know, I think part of, part of what happens when you go through something like that and then, you know, chemotherapy and, 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 and then, uh, you know, I've been in remission ever since. And it's, um, it's one of these things where I've learned so much through that experience and, and have talked to so many people who are about to undergo the same thing I went through. I can't tell you how many folks I've talked to and tried to get them through uh, that difficult part in their lives when they hear a doctor say it's cancer, or they say, okay, your chemotherapy starts next week. And I think that's part of, you know, being in that club that nobody wants to be in, that cancer club, is that you try to help help the next person. And so, again, that's kind of a, you know, it it puts you in that servant mentality, and that's never a bad thing. Mm. So you you talk a lot about that in your book, Unscripted, which is out now, and uh, encourage people to go get it and read it. And uh, I think people really like your 
your, your style and you're very open and transparent about your experiences, but also kind of uh, what it's like to work uh, at TNT and do this show and be involved in, in the life that you're involved in. What was the book writing experience for you? Uh, well, you know, as a first time author, I mean, it was, I was learning on the fly. I mean, I had, I had basically no idea how this all worked out. And so, you know, one of the keys to this is having, you know, I had a literary agent, uh, mm-hmm. her name is Chris Park out of Washington, who's been invaluable in this experience. And then Baker Publishing, mm-hmm. um, who, who put the book out, you know, they, they walked me through step by step. And so I was really learning on the fly. And, uh, you know, one of the toughest things is just laying the book out in, in that initial phase of saying, okay, here's, here are the ways I want, here's how I see the chapters unfolding. Here's what each chapter will be about. And then connecting all of those dots and, and, and writing the book as I've always loved to write. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so it was, um, it was a great learning experience. It was, uh, it was an emotional time. It was exhilarating at times. It was draining. Mm. And, but, but ultimately, one of the most satisfying things I've ever been involved in in my life. Well, and if you wanted to be an English teacher, uh, writing is a kind of a natural sure. outlet, right? <laughs> yeah, without question. No, that, and that's it. I've always loved the language. I've always, even in, in television, always loved telling stories you know, that we would produce. And that was, you know, that was part of the process. And this is just kind of the next step in that, though much more involved and, and, and just trying to you know, get me from point A to point B to point C and, 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 and doing mm-hmm. that in the language that I use. I would hope that when people read the book, it's, it, it feels like I'm in the room talking to you. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that's, you know, that's always what I've enjoyed from the writers I've, uh, I've enjoyed, you know, reading, you know, from, mm-hmm. you know, John Ortberg to Don Miller, you name it. Mm-hmm. Well, if you're a parent like me, you know that your kids are asking pretty difficult questions questions about race, questions about gender, questions about sexuality. As parents, how do we answer those questions? Well, the ERLC is hosting a conference this August on Christ-centered parenting in a complex world. We're going to have a variety of voices and experts to speak. Russell Moore, Sally Lloyd-Jones, Jim Daly, Jen Wilkin, Crawford Loritz, Phil Vischer, Nancy Guthrie, Danny Aiken, Lauren Chandler, Eric Mason, and many more. So we invite you to come join us in Nashville on August 24th to 26th. And if you use a coupon code, WAYHOME, you'll get a 20% discount. So go to ERLC.com events and get signed up for the 2017 ERLC National Conference, Christ-Centered Parenting in a Complex World. your career is involved in sports and um, you know sometimes it's easy to kind of trivialize and say well that's just sports but really sports has a way in many ways of serving the public particularly people who are going through difficult times do you kind of see sports that way in your role that way oh sure and I've always I've always looked at our show as kind of a distraction from the real world things that that are that occupy all of our thoughts I mean there there are nights when you turn on the local news or the national news and you and you want to turn it off because mm. It feels like the world is spinning out of control, and and you know folks are tuning in and saying, "Hey, t- 
take me away from that for a couple hours, will mm-hmm. you? And, and, and I think we've always looked at ourselves as a pleasant distraction from real life. And, um, and, you know, I know when I go into work every day, I'm going to laugh. Mm. And I think we all need that from time to time. Yeah. You know, it's great to do that every day, as a matter of fact. And so um, that's how I've seen that. And I think sports has a way of, of you know, of bridging some divides. It yeah. brings people together. I'm part of the March Madness coverage. That's an event that, that shrinks the world for a few weeks. Mm. You know, it brings people together at the water cooler who might never have talked. Mm. Because suddenly they're trying to figure out if South Dakota State is a, is a good pick to, to win their opener, even though they're a high seed or a low seed. So, um, yeah, I think sports has a, has a huge place there. I don't want to oversell it and say sports is the be all and end all, but I I do think it brings folks together. And that even goes to little league when you're, you know, you're watching your kids play and and suddenly you have a relationship with a, with a mom and a dad that you would not have met. And, and, and oftentimes, you know, that can be a, you know, that can be an avenue to sharing the gospel with them. It was like a common language of sports uh, that it can bring people together. That's pretty great. Well, listen, Ernie Johnson, I really appreciate you joining us. Man, uh, really have, I've watched your show for years. I'm a huge fan of the NBA and, and just love your work and thankful for your Christian testimony and just kind of the using your platform to, you know, serve and, and, and help people. So before I let you go... If you know, if you could make a prediction for the NBA Finals, who you think is going to be in there? Uh, do you have a gut feeling about who you think what teams are going to end up end up there? Yeah, I think I think you're going to see Golden State and Cleveland again, mm-hmm. um, and I don't see anybody beating Golden State four times. So I think the I think the Warriors will be celebrating a championship. Mm. And for LeBron, eight Finals in a row potentially. <laughs> yeah. That's amazing. No, I'm... he's no, he's he is a, he is an amazing an amazing athlete, you know, and, and that's what part of the thing is, you know, you, you love doing this job and, and you feel blessed to be able to have covered somebody from the start to the end of their career. I've seen that, you know, I've seen that a lot in the course of 28 years at Turner. Uh, and, and every now and then these guys come along that you just feel lucky to have watched in their prime. I'm still a traditionalist as a Chicago Bulls fan. I have to say Jordan's the best of all time, but the argument's getting a little bit harder to make the, the more LeBron plays in the league. No, I've, you know, yeah, I saw Michael at his best, too, and I've, I have a hard time going away from that either. Yeah, me too. Well, thank you so much, Ernie Johnson. appreciate you and uh, encourage everyone uh, to get this book. I appreciate it very much, Dan. Thank you much. Thank you for listening to The Way Home Podcast. If you've enjoyed this conversation, please let us know by writing a review on iTunes. You can catch previous episodes on danieldarling.com. The Way Home is produced by Gary Lancaster and scheduling by Marie Delph. The Way Home is a production of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention.